This is uh, January 19th, 2008. We are in Matthew uh, Part 2, Lesson 8, which is a study on Chapter 18, and let's open in prayer. Our Father, our King, uh, we thank you that you are a good judge, that you judge wisely and fairly. Father, we thank you that um, you do not apply uh, mercy or grace without uh, providing for it. And Father, we thank you that your fairness is the fairness that sees the righteousness of our Master Yeshua and applies it to us and gives us uh, a pardon. Father, we thank you for this. And we ask that as we seek forgiveness uh, from you, that we might be uh, also always remembering who it is that we must forgive. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Uh, last couple of weeks, we've kind of been moving uh, really quickly through uh, some of these uh, really uh, uh, profound things that are changing in, in, in Matthew. We have, a, we have a shift, and this chapter is the last. This ch- chapter is a didactic teaching, or it's a teaching rather section from Matthew. From here on, though, we are entering the last week of, of uh, the ministry of Yeshua on Earth, and we have uh, uh, we saw that last week when he when he basically is is uh, on the mountain, and there's a discussion between he and we learned this uh, uh, um, uh, what was it from uh, from Luke the discussion between he and Moses and Elijah about his upcoming uh, his upcoming death and resurrection uh, the kingdom being uh, pictured first uh, there on the mountain um, Let's read read these scriptures and we see how they relate to the idea that we're going to come out of chapter 18 with. Uh, The Lord preserves the simple. And that word in Hebrew there simply means naive, not the idiot, the person that's naive. Uh, I was brought low and he saved me. Psalm 116.6 The Torah, the word of the Lord, is perfect, converting. And that is the word, the same root that we get uh, repent from, true. Uh, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. How do you get wisdom? James tells us everyone who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives all men freely, without reproach. Uh, how do you get wisdom? What is it to be wise? And that's from Psalm 119.7. Oh, how I love your Torah. How I love your word. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser. How, was, how, must a man, how does a man or a woman become wise? A child become wise? God's very word teaches us how to be wise. How, how wise? Wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. That's not boasting, by the way. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. Understand more. You know, here's this idea that people think, well, as time goes on, we're smarter. We know more. And actually, that's not true. We do far, if you're a history student, which I am, we do far too much denigrating of the past because they seem outdated or whatever else. News better, right? And in fact, it usually is the other way around. But here... David says in Psalm 119.97 through 100, he says, I have more understanding than the ancients. And there's only one reason why. Because I keep your precepts. That's it. I keep your precepts. Last week we had this glimpse of Yeshua in the kingdom. There on this mountain. Uh, this glimpse that in fact uh, reminded us of Mount Sinai. Now to some that might sound bad. Uh, because they've read the book of Galatians with the, with the, uh, with the blinders of 1,800 years of anti-Semitic 
theology whether they're anti-Semitic or not. And they believe that Mount Sinai is somehow bad. That's a bad thing. You know, ooh, that's the stone. You know, give me grace. I don't want to read the stone. Uh, but in fact, what we see at Mount Sinai is a giant, a huge betrothal ceremony. That's not bad. That's good. Right? And they're under the hoopah of the cloud of the Almighty at, at Sinai, at Horeb. Uh, he spoke, and his words were visible. They saw them. Uh, what a powerful thing now to stand here in this mountain in upper Galilee and to hear the voice of the Almighty speak regarding Yeshua standing there with Moses, conversing with Moses and, and uh, Elijah, Eliyahu, and, and to hear him say, Listen to my son. Hear him, Shema him. Uh, that's a powerful picture. That we are supposed to make that connection. See, if you don't like Sinai, you kind of miss part of the importance of this. This is the kingdom. We're looking at the kingdom. Listen, he's going to reign from his throne in Jerusalem. He's the king, and I promise you, everyone must obey him. So what we see here is this idea, this, this reflection of this is what that betrothal at Sinai was all about. It was a picture. It was a, it was a betrothal of the, that will be consummated when all Israel will in fact surrender to the bridegroom. Uh, it's the end of the Galilee mystery, so it's a little bit sad for us. I mean, uh, the disciples are rather shocked at what they heard in chapter 16, that he's going to die. And then in chapter 17, where he's telling them, yes, you saw all this. It was, in fact, he didn't say it this way, but in fact, the picture of the, of the coming kingdom. But by the way, don't tell anyone what you saw. Don't, don't tell anyone I'm Messiah. You know, we're, we're troubled by that. We're, I'm troubled by that. Um, but we see now this beginning of this final week where uh, things are going to happen rapidly. You know, we have, we have from chapter, uh, probably from about chapter uh, 21 on, is all within a week span. Or actually the last chapter spans a little bit further because it goes into the 40 days after his resurrection. But it's, it's pretty rapid and, the, and, the, and it's easy to lose track of where we've been. Um, this chapter 18 has a section, a teaching section. It's the fourth teaching section of Matthew, which uh, in some of the other Gospels it kind of runs stuff together. We see this uh, Matthew is very profound in the way that he tries to move through this, telling you a series of events, establishing some information for you about Yeshua's ministry, about his purpose, and then giving you some of his teaching that goes along with it. What did we learn last week? He is the king. He's coming. He is, his kingdom is going to be established. And what do we see this week in chapter 18? Something about judgment. Forgiveness. But it starts off with, first, humility. This is uh, it's pretty, pretty interesting. If you did your homework... You're, you, I hope you made this correlation uh, between Matthew chapter 18 verse 1 and uh, Matthew chapter 5. Let's go to chapter 18 verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Yeshua saying, Who is, the gra- who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you know, can you imagine asking this question? I mean... You might think it. <laughs> Why is that? Why do we kind of like, I would think that I would never say that out loud. Well, that's true too, but that's, we don't have that here. That's true, that's true. But we don't have that here. So, I mean, but can you imagine somebody saying, who will be greatest? 
uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like here when there's a promotion opportunity at work and it's by application. Uh, everybody's like, well, who's putting in for it? You know, it's like, well, you know, you don't want to let everybody know. Well, I think I'm worthy of that. You know, right? it's the funniest thing. You know, it's like uh, you, it's like that's false humility, though, in a way, but isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's false humility. So it's interesting here that although they seem not to be very humble in asking this question. They're really no different than we are. They're just voicing it. Go to chapter 5, verse 19. That's right. That's exactly right. But he tells us. This is the thing is, they already knew the answer to this. They did. They knew the answer. Did they remember? Well, I think Matthew remembers later because he writes it down. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to be greatest? The one who does and teaches them. Well, if that's your aspiration, see, everybody, I, I doubt that many people, some people are very driven to be greatest. Many people are like, well, I don't want to care about being greatest. Yet, actually, you do, deep down inside. You want to excel at anything that you do. You want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You want to be recognized for your sacrifices? Recognized for your love? <coughs> No man. That's it. It's easy. Isn't it? See, I've not called you to do something that's impossible. It's not in heaven that you should go up and take it or have to find it. It's not in the depths that you should go down. It's here. It's in your mouth that you shall do it. Right? That's it. Isn't that great? I love that. It's wonderful. What a powerful teaching. Uh, It's repeated in the apostolic scriptures. Repeated in the apostolic scriptures. It's not too hard to obey him. And here is the answer to finding uh, greatness in the kingdom. It's obedience. Move on. Chapter 18, verse 2. Then Yeshua called a little child to him and sat, and, and sat him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say, I, uh, assure, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will be by... I love that. Isn't that great? Those translators love that. Well, you mean to be converted. <laughs> unless you repent. Unless you are, uh, repent and become as little children, you will be by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Wait a minute. Is there a correlation between chapter 5, 19 and this? Yes, there absolutely is. And it's the opposite of what most people convey in this idea of come as a little child. What do you usually hear with associated with just come as a little child? Childlike faith. What's childlike faith? Because you say it, I think it's true. That's right. That's exactly right. You say it, it must be true. But you know something? Does a child have a choice? Well, they do, but they don't know they do. Does a child have a choice whether they're going to obey or not? If you have a disciplinarian for a father or a mother, or both, hopefully, uh, does a child have a choice? They do, but they don't know that they do. Do they? They just know that, you know, after a while, it's just not worth it to keep disobeying. <laughs> right? That, listen, this is the irony behind this. That really is what a childlike faith is. I don't know I had a choice. <sighs> Why does a child obey a parent that disciplines them in love? Why? It's not because they, it's not worth it, really. Why? It's a lot more enjoyable, isn't it? 
I mean, I, after all, it's, it's really not hard. <laughs> Just do what they tell you to do, and the love that you that you feel, right? Absolutely. No, this is a childlike faith. Funny, that is not the way that I've ever understood this until I started studying it this way and comparing it to chapter 519. You know, instead what I thought was childlike faith means I have to be an idiot. That's the way it's usually taught. You just have to be an idiot. You can't think. Of course you can think. You can't ask questions. That's nothing. Children do nothing but ask questions. I used to teach people that if you ask God questions, that was wrong. And I was wrong to teach that. We're supposed to ask questions how we learn. We're children. <laughs> Comparatively, we're, you know, beyond infants even. I mean, we're, it, it's, uh, the comparison is just, uh, we have no way of knowing our, the best way. I guess because children don't care what other people think. That's true. They just do. And if they're worshiping the Lord, Good. they do it their way and you know they, so they're not worried about what other people think we're grown up sometimes they get that mindset you know <laughs> other people that's are, right you know, yeah. they, you know, are they doing the same thing kind of you know. Children don't care what other people think. That's right. That's exactly. You know, they just do it. Well, you know, they know how they think, and and right. everybody must be like me. You know. So you're right. Children do not do not care what other people think. They they take it and and uh, um, simply respond to it. And like I say, now we're not talking about bad parents. We're talking about good parents. What do children do? They obey. You know, the idea the the, the idea or the concept that. If obedience happens in children, somehow that's a miracle. That's the that's the abnormal. Is 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 so wrong? Uh, it's only because we live in a society like we do that we think that's true. No, children with loving dis, uh, uh, disciplinarian parents obey. That's it. They do. That's what we're talking about. Childlike faith. Yes, we're saying. It seems that also uh, with children, there's a, there's a trust issue. That is. That they trust their parents. That's right. They obey. It's our responsibility to trust the Lord. That's right. But why do children? And see, this is a great point. There is an element of trust in obedience, isn't it? The song was right: trust and obey. There's no other way. Right? I mean, there is this element. You obey because you trust your parents. Are not trying to hurt you. They're not trying to do something wrong, although you may not understand it. That's the ironic thing about children, especially little children. They, it's beyond their comprehension. All they know is their parents love them. And, you know, if mommy or daddy say to do it, then it goes a whole lot better for me if I just do. It's interesting to me because my, my younger sister is a social worker and she works with a lot of abusive families. She said, even how much love children will have for parents who oh, yes. are abusive. I know. It, it, actually, that is very true, and it's, it tells us something very positive about this idea. Mm-hmm. That, that if people will love an abusive person, how much more they will love someone who disciplines in a godly way. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Thank you. That's absolutely right. Uh, let's go to, there is this issue. Verse, go to verse 4, 18 verse 4 says, Whoever receives little one, uh, excuse me, verse, yeah, verse 4. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember when we were talking about the, the, why, the rich man going through the eye, or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Do you remember how that got all twisted around? Well, a rich man has to unburden himself from all the world's possessions uh, because the 
camel couldn't fit through this gate called the eye of a needle and how this is a complete fabrication that never happened, never existed, had nothing to do with anything. Um, uh, there is actually a, uh, there is a, uh, I ran across some, something recently. Uh, the Talmud actually says that, that if you will make a crack, it says, the size of the eye of a needle, God speaking says, I will bring wagons of blessing through it. If you will just obey a little bit, you will see the blessings overwhelm you. And, and what we understand in this idea of humility is that we become dependent upon him. Go to chapter, Numbers chapter 12 verse 3. Because if we want to learn about humility, we're going to have to pick up... Uh, Janet, my wife, loves uh, the song Humble King, or uh, Humble King? Yeah, mm-hmm. the song we sing, Humble King. She loves that idea of the Humble King. And we, we learn humility. Uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2, we learn humility profoundly from the ministry of Yeshua. But in some ways, we cannot comprehend that because it is, it is too profound for us. That, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Uh, so, we have another example. And actually, it's the predecessor, uh, 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 at least in ministry, the predecessor example, and that is of Moses. Yeshua and Moses share the same quality. Obviously, Yeshua gives it to us in perfection. Moses, a man like us, though, someone not only that we can uh, emulate or must emulate, but someone who, in fact, we know that we can perfectly emulate because he's like us Numbers chapter 12 verse 3 now the man Moses was very humble more than all men who were on the face of the earth I know that most people don't think of Moses as humble but if you study the Torah it's the number one thing that comes across every time Moses comes up is he's humble he's humble go to chapter 6 go to verse 6 and 8 then he said, Hear now my words. This is, this is the Almighty speaking. Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I the Lord might make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. And if Moses was faithful... Obviously, Yeshua is even more so. But here we have this picture of humility. Um, if, you, if you follow Moses' ministry from the beginning, his life from the beginning, where is it that we see his humility really come into play? If you remember the burning bush, and this is my notes down here, remember the burning bush, he argues with God. <laughs> Go and speak. I can't speak. Uh, they won't believe me. You know, Whatever. Give me any excuse. Uh, he doesn't seem... Now, he argues with God later on. In fact, he argues with God quite a bit after that, doesn't he? But what does he argue about? Does he argue about his obedience? Never. He always obeys. What's, the, what's he going to argue about? That's right. But Lord, these are your people. Now these are the ones he complains about too. By the way, these people that you that you you, you burdened me with. But every time God speaks uh, in a way that he seems it seems to Moses to be threatening to the people or to the promise he says Lord these you promised you promised that's right but the difference is when you see after that burning bush experience Moses understands it seems that he must obey God as a child depending he he says it I, I have to do it there's no other way there's no other way there's no fighting against him and winning 
how would that whole plague experience have a profound effect on, on Moses? The profound effect is Pharaoh's the leader that hardened his heart and he lost. And there's no way that you can that you can that you can go against God and what he wants. In fact, if you go with him, if you'll obey him, you will receive the blessings in spite of the way that it looks. I mean it's a it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Wonderful thing. If you want to be more like Moses, obey or if you want to be more humble, you can obey God. Like Moses did. Go to first Peter chapter two. <clears throat> Verse two, first, uh, first Peter two two says, as newborn. Actually, start in verse one. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Now, here's the thing that I'm a little bit angry about at times. People want to know God's will. I'm praying to know God's will. Should I take this job? Should I move? You know, should I marry this person? Uh, they even ask, should I divorce this person? Is that God's will? <laughs> should I live with this person? Is that your will? Lord, if it's your will, you know, keep me from sinning. That, you know, sometimes it's just amazing the way that the things that people come up with trying to find God's will. And God has given us His will. He's given it to us very clearly. I mean, when could, if they would just write it in the sky, I'd obey Him. No, He wrote it on paper so you would obey Him. Well, okay, it, was, uh, it wasn't written on paper. It's however, it was method, but parchment. But it was there and you can obey Him. And it's not too difficult. You can know His will. The idea that people could say, out of the blue, well, I'd like to know as well whether I should take this job. My suggestion, and I've, you've heard me say this before, my suggestion is take what you know he's already said. And when you can faithfully say, yes, I'll do everything that you tell me to do, then you have the right to ask him to show you his will. And I promise, if you are faithful in obeying him, you know something? You may not even care whether you should take that job. Because you know wherever you go, He'll be there blessing you with it. That's amazing, isn't it? It's like we got it backwards. Well, show me your will, then I'll obey you. <laughs> no, that is my will. Right? Uh, and here we say, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. You know what a lot of people think? That means just school Bible study. No. Bible study is the way that you learn what to do. If it's just Bible study, because it's fun, it's a way to fellowship, we enjoy it, don't we? I enjoy it. I enjoy meeting here with you. I do. I love it. But if it's just a, something we enjoy doing and not doing, or enjoy studying and not doing, that's not... The pure milk of the word means you take it in. You actually do what you learn, that you may grow. If indeed you have tasted the Lord is gracious. You know, we, that's the problem. Is we, we have this confusion of language where we think that grace means obedience is nullified. That obedience is not important. Grace in your house, if you have children, you were certainly a child at one time. Grace in your home is, is established by having rules that are obeyed. And providing that the rules can be obeyed. My mom says that grace is the, is the ability, the supernatural ability to obey God. Isn't that great? 
He didn't just leave us hanging. He actually gave us his word so we would know what he loves to see in his children. We're not earning righteousness. We're not earning his love. He already loved us. While we're sinners, he's loved us. What we're doing is we're establishing peace. We're maintaining peace between us. We're learning from him in that process. It's powerful. First Peter, go to chapter 2, verse 5. It says, You also, as living stones... Excuse me, 5, verse 5. 2, 5, verse 5. First Peter 5, verse 5. Got it right now. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of the, you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. It's funny to me that this, phrase, this verse is not known unless you quote, wives be submissive to your husbands. <laughs> Otherwise, no one would even quote it. Uh, submissive to one another means it. Be submissive to one another. Here's, here's, here's the way that I, I just kind of phrased it out in my words. Dependence upon God is the model. That's what childlike faith is. Depending upon God. Submission is its action. How do you show it? How do you show childlike faith? You obey. That's it. And humility is its clothing. This is what it wears. You're cloaked with humility. It's not fake humility. Well, I would never ask who's the greatest. No, it's not fake humility. It's real humility. It's understanding that, you know, of course, achievement is important, but that's not what it's all about. It's about finding that peace. Pardon me? Well, it's written here, dependence upon God is a model of childlike faith. Submission is its action, and humility is its clothing. Questions or comments before we move on to the next subject? Because he kind of, it seems, maybe not, but it seems that he switches subjects. Matthew chapter 18. I believe it's verse, five, verse 15. Actually, uh, he goes into, actually we're going to skip over this parable. Uh, warns of offenses. Actually, let me, let me read just a couple of these for, real quick. Verse 6. Uh, verse 5. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. He's going to deal with this again in chapter 25. So we're going to remember, we'll come back to this, okay? But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone where, uh, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into the into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire if your eye causes you to sin pluck it out and cast it from you it is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire this is rhetoric actually it's very common it's very common and I think that most people would understand that he's using he's using extremes in order to make a point uh, but it's actually the, these very phrases are very common within within the rabbinic sources as well. The idea that you would rather for something uh, uh, incomprehensible to happen than to do something that is completely acceptable among people. It's completely acceptable among people to sin, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, we do. But it's completely unacceptable in people's minds, socially, uh, you know, anthropologically, that you would pluck out your own eye. Because you didn't like to look at something? You know, the idea that, you know, that's, that's beyond the norm. So that's why he's using this as an extreme. He's making a point. What is that point? This is how bad you should hate it. 
Right? And I think most people understand that. Although these verses trouble people, they shouldn't trouble them. This is a common way of speaking. Uh, and then he has this parable of the lost sheep, believing the 99, and we're going to come back to that. Let's move on to the next passage, which is chapter uh, eight, uh, 18, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him... By the way, when you read moreover, it's like therefore, right? Moreover, in other words, it's the same subject. Dealing with the same subject. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If the, and that doesn't mean in a prayer setting. I have a prayer request. Let's pray about so-and-so's sinning against me. Well, usually we don't do it that blatantly, but we have a way of doing this anyway. It's not nearly as obvious as that, but it's still the same thing, right? Well, I'm having a problem. I won't say who it is. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, sometimes prayer requests are a little bit shocking. Uh, uh, here it says, go to him and him alone. In private. In my mind, that's almost like, don't even bring it before God. You've got something to settle first. Think about this. Just a minute. I will get back to that. Uh, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. Leviticus 19.17 tells us, if you see your brother sin, you should go to him. Did you know that? Go over there. Look that, look that up. I thought this was a new teaching. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 17 our translators are so confused when they get to these passages my bible a new king james my bible a new king james can't decide which part of the law this is. So they just, at the, te- at the heading, it says moral, moral and ceremonial laws. This <laughs> is various. Various laws, yeah. here's, here's the reason why that's funny, because the minute you start talking about, oh, has lying suddenly become okay? Because the law has been nailed to the cross? And people go, well, no, no, that part's still valid. Well, here embedded in these same verses... These same verses mixed in. You tell me what part's ceremonial, what part's moral. It's all moral. It's all moral. It's all about what God defined as righteous. Look at what it says in verse 19. Um, actually, it's not verse. It's verse 17. Excuse me, not, but 19. You see, it's like breeding livestock. What's up with that? It all goes together. Uh, verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Okay, what does that mean? You shall not hate your brother in your heart. It means two things, doesn't it? It's a it's a negative command, and actually, when you look at, when you look at, at the list of negative and positive commands, uh, these are compiled by human beings, so they're not always right. But if you look at the list of negative and positive commands, this is a negative and a positive command. The negative command is thank you. The negative command is were you signaling me? You're just saying hi. No, no, no. Okay. Okay. I was like, oh, it's not time yet. <laughs> the negative command is don't hate your brother in your heart. What's the positive command? It's implied positive command. You should love him. That's right. There's no in between, y'all. There's no in between. Ever. You know this is true. There's no in between. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. 
this is what Matthew 18 is talking about. Go to your brother. If he sins against you, go to him in private. Now, rebuke seems like a harsh word, and it is a little harsh, but Hebrew has this sense of being somewhat harsh. <laughs> it's okay. Small vocabulary. Earthy. That makes it really good and easy to understand. <laughs> Obviously, we're going to say it love, with love, but go to your brother. You've gained your brother. Verse, Matthew chapter 18, verse 16. But if he will not hear, take him with you. Take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. This is not a new teaching. This is... This is the Torah. This is the way that a dispute was to be settled. And it is speaking specifically. Now I will keep reading. It says, uh, verse 17, And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the, in my English Bible says, the church. Uh, But if he refuses even to hear, quote, the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. This is speaking not of what we would use the word church. It's ecclesia, which is the assembly. This is not a new teaching. This is a very old teaching. What is it that he's speaking about? He's speaking about a bet din. The bet din, the house of judgment, is the, is, the, is the method by which the community resolves dispute. True dispute between brothers. Where one is sinned against another. It's a court. It's a community court. Our thoughts, because our society is split, secular and and, and holy we no longer combine the two we think the court is a secular civil issue it is not and the idea the people that like to split the law into parts the Torah into parts they say well this is legal no no no, no this is not legal this is community this is the way communities work Yeshua carries that forward his community will operate in the same way I, I know a lot of congregations don't have what you would consider to be a court but this congregation does biblical congregations do resolve disputes between brothers large congregations it becomes very difficult and I, I, am, I am sensitive to that but I can promise you a congregation that will not resolve disputes between brothers is not a congregation you want to be a part of because they're disobedient to the very commandments of God first found in the Torah repeated here by Yeshua our master Matthew chapter 18 and our, our court is the elders we have a court that is first and foremost our elders but is also made up of anybody that the elders would choose to, to help resolve a dispute because it starts small and then gets and gets bigger and that's what the way that Yeshua deals with this he shows how this becomes something that starts out between you and a brother first mm-hmm. Yes, and that's the next step and that's not a new idea either because that's if you look back in, in from ancient times Judaism has practiced this this is not something the Catholics came up even though it's Latin <laughs> this is not something Catholics came up with this is something that actually if you go and read the Talmud some of, the, some of my favorites were excommunicated actually my favorite uh, was excommunicated my favorite sage was excommunicated uh, he was excommunicated for uh, something that the Talmud doesn't really give us a sense of what it was. My own personal feeling is that it was, it was uh, his name is Eliezer Ben-Hiraconis. Uh, he was first century sage and he was excommunicated I think because he was a, he was, he, he, was a, he, he had close contact 
with followers of Yeshua. I believe he was a secret believer, but maybe not secret. But anyway, that's my opinion. But no, it's not excommunication. <laughs> no excommunication. In Sam's teaching, it actually does come to the congregation. Yes, it does. Eventually, absolutely. I that, that no, no, and, and thank you. I'm not. I wasn't trying to bunch it all together. I'm saying there's a process that starts small and gets big. If the person does not repent after two or three witnesses That's it. of the elders go to them, That's right. and I'm sorry to say, but in my history, I have the visitor actually have That's right. That's right. We have, we have this history in this congregation of carrying this out as mandated, okay, in love. Uh, and we don't have time to go into all these things. If you don't have, if you don't have this background, I would encourage you. If you didn't do your homework, to go through these scriptures. First Corinthians chapter six deals with a person that is is in sin. The congregation deals with it righteously, as as told by Paul. And in Second Corinthians, the implication is that it was resolved, and the person repents. This is the goal of discipline congregational discipline the goal is to repentance this is not if someone offends you it, it seems like the, the concept of excommunication is a very final step but see, this is the wonderful thing. If you follow the First Corinthians model, and actually, by the way, the rabbinic model as well for excommunication does say this: that if someone repents, all is forgiven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In other words, you get excommunicated in the Catholic Church, you're probably going to burn at the stake. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, you repented, but whoa, it's too late. Sorry. <laughs> Michael Servetus, you know the, the executioner. His last his last words were, you know, uh, you know, master of the universe, uh, you know, in, and your and your son, you know, or something along those lines. And he said, well, if he had reversed that or somehow made made uh, your son master of the universe, uh, then he would have been forgiven, but he'd still die. And they gave you two choices. Yeah. Faster or slow. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Faster or slow. Purified or not purified. Yeah, it's like, okay, you want your head cut off before or after? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty sad. It's really, it is really sad. That is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the incorrect application of the death penalty, for goodness sakes. Um, anyway. Uh, Take the time to go through this if you are not familiar with this. It is, it is, but the, suffice it to say, this is classic Dean language. Yeshua is using Dean language. This is not for when someone offends you. That is the incorrect application of Matthew 18. Oh, I'm offended by someone who sinned against me. Listen, if they really did sin against you, follow through. But you know something? First Corinthians 6 says something else. Why not rather be wrong? If you've been offended, just. Why not rather be wrong? Why are you bringing this kind of thing to the court? And a worldly court at, the, at, at, at best. The idea that believers could sue one another, to me, as a, as a kid growing up, and when I was a, a, a young adult, to hear that two believers were suing one another, I was appalled. How is that possible? Scripture tells very clearly that's wrong. That's just wrong. You can't do that. And why aren't those people being booted out if they won't stop it? And yet it goes on and on. That's, it's, not even, it's not even uncommon. It's very common now. How sad. Anyway, let's move on. Because why not that rather be wrong, as 1 Corinthians 6, 7 says, why not rather be wrong is the point that Yeshua makes then going into chapter 18. This is all one subject. He has this parable of the unforgiving servant. Starting in verse, uh, verse 21. Now Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me that I shall forgive him? Up to seven times. 
And Yeshua said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And he's not saying count them, 490. Right? Uh, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. He's telling you a parable. Okay? Now, what's a parable? Its purpose is to, it's an illustration, a real life illustration, something you can understand to convey a concept to make one or two points. That's all. Okay? Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, but he was not able to pay. His master commanded that he be sold, and his wife and children, all that he had in the payment, be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out, found one of his fellow servants, and owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hand on him, hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down at his feet, begging him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went, and threw threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you also have had compassion? Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each do to you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Unconditional forgiveness is not a biblical concept. It's a biblical concept of what we should do. It is not a biblical concept of what God will do. Do you believe that? That's pretty, that's scary. I'm serious. If you're not frightened by these kind of verses, then you need to read again, because that's not the only place it says it. Go back to uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. What's the unforgivable sin? People want to go. Is it blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Tell me what the unforgivable sin is. People want to know. I want to know what the unforgivable sin is. Well, here's one. You won't forgive your brother when he sins against you. Think back. I think it's something really good. Every year at Yom Kippur that we start and we just make it official. Let's think back. Who sinned against me? Who have I not forgiven? Go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. Now, who's offended me? Who have I not forgiven? Whatever reason. I haven't forgiven. How can I expect to be forgiven? How much rather be... That's right. That that was the second bell? Okay, let's finish up. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. says... For if you, forg- if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Most people forget that. that there's another verse that follows that. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Period. Should I deal with this person? If, if someone sinned against me, should I deal with them? Yes, absolutely. If necessary. Why not rather be harmed? But absolutely. It's, it's completely okay. It's completely okay to want to have deal with it in a congregational sense. It's completely okay. They've sinned against you, not just offended you, sinned against you. However, what's the final outcome? I forgive you. Period. I forgive you. And it's not like, oh, don't ever do that again. How many times? 
70 times 7. So you have no right to go, but if you do it again, how many times have you heard that? I forgive you, but. No, no buts. I forgive you, period. Don't hold it against them. Uh, in fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, uh, in the NIV says, keeps no record of wrongs. I don't even remember if you ever did this before. So, by all means, you're forgiven. Right? Uh, this parable of this king, or this uh, uh, unforgiving servant, starts with the king, by the way. Just the correlation points, the king is God. Uh, the counts, obviously, is a record of sins. It's not hard to figure out, is it? Forgiving of the debt, that's atonement or forgiveness. The servant, the sinner who has unforgiveness towards others. And the single point is, just what we said in Matthew chapter 6, if you don't forgive others, you will not be forgiven. Does his blood cover all? Yes. But it can't be applied if you don't forgive. It won't be applied if you don't forgive. That's a very troubling thing. If your theology is upset by that, then you need to spend more time with Scripture. Because God is very clear. If you cannot forgive others, you cannot be forgiven. Uh, Mark 11, he says, When you stand praying... Mark 11, chapter chapter 11, verse 25. When you stand praying and you remember that someone has something against you, stand praying is code. Not really. Not if you, not if you use the phrase when you amida, when you stand. Stand praying is the Shimon Esrei. Shimon Esrei says very clearly in, uh, in the uh, forgiveness blessing, which is, uh, is the, uh, the sixth blessing, forgive us our Father, Swakalanu, Avini. Forgive us, our Father, for we have sinned. Pardon us, Mechalanu. Pardon us, our King, for we have done wrong. Pardon and forgive. Blessed are you, Lord, who graciously forgives. You cannot pray that three times a day without remembering that others have sinned against you and you must forgive them. Yeshua is saying, when you stand praying, forgive others. This is a that's a powerful thing. What a great practice. Now, I'm not saying you have to go start praying three times a day, the, the Amidah. But here's the, one of the benefits from it, is that you can't let it go long. It can't fester <laughs> and get worse and get more difficult to forgive. Oh, man, 20 years ago, so-and-so did something. I think it's great that every Yom Kippur we go through the practice when we go through the liturgical prayers of Yom Kippur we go through the practice of releasing others that have sinned against us forgiving them understanding that we must forgive first in order to receive forgiveness but even better yet how much better daily you know don't let it go long don't let it wait you know do it do it before it becomes a problem for you you know, this is, a, this is a great teaching on humility, isn't it? You know, it's a great teaching, teaching to be as a child coming to him. Children forget. They don't bear well. They don't bear grudges like we do. They have short memories in this regard. Um, we need to be more like that. Obedient. Not obedient as a child naturally. As obedient as a child is in a loving home. We need to be obedient as a child. We need to be trusting as a child. We need to be dependent as a child. And we also need to be forgiving. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your grace in giving us a community that loves us. 
Father, I thank you for each one in this, in this congregation and for their commitment to one another. And I ask that you might bless that commitment uh, with love ever increasing. We know that our Master commanded us to love. And it's not a command that we take lightly, but it's not a command that we find difficult. It's a command that because we have been loved, it is so much easier for us to love. Teach us to be forgiving of one another, of even small offenses. Teach us to be forgiving of one another, even in things that we don't agree with each other when we, uh, when we look and read your word. Father, teach us to be forgiving one another and show true love, that the world may know that you have come, that you have sent Yeshua, our Master, to redeem. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you.